The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio where we explore pathways to health for self, society, and the planet. We are home to a range of voices, as there is no single roadmap for meeting the challenges of our times. Tune in each week to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Now, here's your host, Hello, everyone. I hope you are all well. This is Rochelle McLaughlin, and I want to welcome you to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio, which is devoted to amplifying, inspiring voices of our times, facing challenging realities head on, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, intrapersonal, transpersonal, and global health and wellness. And I invite you to visit our website, experiencerevolutionarywellness.com, and be a part of this global community that aspires to expand our perspectives, open our hearts, deepen our attention, and cultivate skills and ways of being in relationship to our lives that help us become the change we wish to see in the world. And while you are there, be sure to sign up for our newsletter as you will get special invitations to live and online gatherings and events around the world. And you'll be the first to know when our next issue of Revolutionary Wellness Magazine will be published. And my co-host today, Dr. Bio Okomolafe, is the featured contributor for this issue, and he has a powerful and groundbreaking message for us all as we trouble ourselves with these challenging times. There are also other beautiful and powerful essays and articles by Dr. Frederick Apfel-Marglin of the Satyamama Center for Biocultural Regeneration, Dr. Rodney and Janice Dietert, authors of The Human Superorganism, Les Jensen, author of the book Citizen King, and poet and nonviolent communication educator Rochelle Lamb, as well as other amazing artists and change agents featured in this issue. So you'll definitely want to Partake in these inspiring messages, and it's free as always. All we ask is if you hear or read something that moves you, that you share it with your friends because this is our passion for you to be on a journey with us to wellness. Because when you feel well, you'll bring that wellness into the world and co create the more beautiful world we all know in our hearts is possible. So, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. And I really hope you enjoy this episode, which is part two of a three part series with my co host, Dr. Bio Okomalafe, and our dear guest, Dr. Lenny Strobel. And if you missed part one, it's available on demand. In It is downloadable for you right here on Voice America's Health and Wellness channel. And in today's conversation, we are joined, as I mentioned, by two extraordinary people. And I don't say that lightly. I had the great honor of being in the company of Dr. Bio Okomolafe and Dr. Lenny Strobel when Bio was here in California doing a series of talks in May. And it was so wonderful to be with people that share an experience of the world that's held with a deep sense of humility vulnerability and care, and yet also a strength and embodied presence, a frankness and passion about life during these times of great change and challenge. 
But what I most enjoyed was just being in their presence, you know, to be with people who genuinely care about other people and who care about the earth and who care about trying to be an ethical and moral human being as they bring to light the emergence of ways of being and ways of knowing the world and caring for the world that are healing. And that's why they are here with us all today as we explore the deeply profound topic of colonization and decolonization. So without further ado, allow me to welcome my co-host, Dr. Bio Okomolafe. He's the chief curator and executive director of the Emergence Network. Bio and his work were featured in a three-part series here on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio in January. And you can access those on demand anytime that you'd like to. And Bio has an upcoming book being published called These Wilds Beyond Our Fences, Letters to My Daughter on Humanity's Search for Home. It's an extraordinary book and it's available for pre-order on Amazon. Bio also understands that he's on a shared decolonial journey with his family to live a small, intense life. And he is an ecstatic father to Alithya Anya. And he and his wife, EJ, have just welcomed their baby boy, Kaya Jaden, into the world. So welcome, Bio, and congratulations on the birth of your baby. And we're so thrilled for you. And I can only imagine how ecstatic you are. Thank you so much, Rochelle. Um, it's exciting to be here with the gift that has just uh, come into our orbit. And yeah, I'm so grateful to be here and talking with you and with Tita. And Bio, it's Kaya Jaden, is that correct? Yes, it's Kaya. I wasn't going to correct thank you. you. This thank <laughs> you, Bio. <laughs> just but it's Kaya, yes. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> We're so, so grateful to have you here. We know you're a busy dad. So um, just thank you so much for, for being here with us. And our guest today, Dr. Lenny Mendoza-Strobel, is Professor of American Multicultural Studies at Sonoma State University. She's also one of the founding directors of the Center for Babylon Studies. It's a nonprofit organization seeking to facilitate the process of decolonization and re-indigenization, specifically among Filipinos in the diaspora. Her books, journal articles, anthologies, and public talks on these themes have planted many seeds in various communities that are now manifesting as a part of a larger visible culture and ecological movement. The center organizes conferences, workshops, retreats, and symposia. Dr. Strobel also teaches a year-long course with Dr. Jürgen Kramer on decolonizing whiteness through the exploration of an ethno-autobiography process that centers indigenous paradigms. And you can find out more info on Dr. Strobel's work at lennystrobel.com. So welcome, Lenny. It's such a pleasure to have you here with us again today. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning, Rochelle and Bio. My pleasure and privilege to uh, be in conversation with you about these topics. Thank you for creating that space. Thank you for being here. It's um, such a pleasure to have you both. And so we, we have received some inquiries from listeners about the concept of colonization and being colonized and how this is currently being played out in our lives today. And so I'd like to focus this episode on unpacking and exploring what that means, what it means to be colonized, and how colonization is being experienced in our modern Western lives. And when I consider how colonization has affected my life, it's I've recognized it really in every aspect of my life, from how I was taught to objectify my body from an early age. Colonization was in my disconnection 
and my disconnected relationship to food. It's in how much of um, my value as an American is tied up with how much I consume. It's in how there was no emotional awareness taught in my upbringing and how I had no ecological training in my education and in how I have placed a disproportionate value on intellectual achievement over intimacy and the health of my body. These are just a few of the ways I've noticed it in my life. And it just, you know, as I've stepped back and really worked to see colonization for what it is, it's absolutely madness, actually, to bear witness to how pervasive it is. And so I'm so grateful to have you both here with us today. And um, I wonder, Bio, if you would be up for responding first, you know, just how, how this resonates for you. Thank you, Rochelle. Um, I think it would be proper for me to, to ask Tita for permission to speak. Uh, There's a thing about the way um, non-Western indigenous people, I don't mean to use indigenous as a blanket word for everyone that is not from the West because people from the West are also indigenous to their lands in some sense. Um, but I want to ask Tita for permission to speak, um, to go ahead and say the things that I want to say. Tita, with your blessings, I will speak. Permission granted. <laughs> Great. Uh, thank you, Rochelle. So the question about colonization has always, or the, the, the thing with colonization yeah, has, al- has always been, I think, a part of my quest to understand myself in relation to a world that is too complex to be reduced to a single doctrine. Um, but I think the, the most powerful thing that could be noticed or is um, probably noticeable about the concept of colonization is how certain patterns of seeing and noticing the world becomes entrenched and perpetuated to the exclusion of other ways of seeing the world. Uh, let me just put that into context um, uh, for a bit. And recently I read an article about um, the fact that the color blue was only just recently, relatively recent, so to speak, was only just recently um, discovered, if you will. So some researchers actually went into ancient texts and they actually could not find any reference to the color blue. In Homer's Odyssey and all his uh, writings, the color blue never once showed up. He would look up into the sky and he would call it brown or give it some other curious, you know, um, color, maybe green or something, or a hyphenated series of colors, but never blue. The sky wasn't apparently or obviously blue to Homer. Neither was it blue to any other writer until the Egyptian civilization came. And they were the first, according to what I read, that um, they were the first to start with dyeing stuff, to use plant dyes in ways that produced the color blue. And so they had a word for blue. So, you know, reading that article and the ways colors um, are invented, so to speak, or are noticed. It started to dawn on me the fact that many things about our world are currently invisible or unseen or excluded from being noticed. And that's the effect of colonization. Colonization is what makes the world meaningful and what makes a large part of it nonsense. And so it, it's basically 
um, the effects, the patriarchal effects of um, of a force that cancels out a large part of the world's agency and vitality and power, and entrenches and perpetuates a system of being and a logic, a dynamism of relationships that, you know, that restores and perpetuates itself to the exclusion of many other ways of being in the world. That's just some way of thinking about colonization to start off with. It's beautiful. Lenny, does that resonate with, with your experience and, or can you um, share yours? What's your experience of colonization? When, okay, so when I teach this subject, because I'm in ethnic studies, sometimes I would start a lecture by asking students, uh, when do you, how old do you think this modern era is? And, and when I say, you know, it's, scholars have marked the era of modernity starting around 1452 when, when um, Columbus started sailing around the world and and then from there, the different global explorations of called discovery of the new world. Um, and by 1935, uh, Edward Said said, you know, 85% of all the lands on this planet have been conquered by Western European colonial forces. And um, so when I talk about colonization, it's very specific to a historical moment, you know, because this period of modernity, like what Bio has said, excludes the lens of seeing to what came before that, all the ancient civilizations that became that came before that, uh, that came before and and in our narration of who we are. And when I say we, I am also specifically referring to the context of the United States, which is now a Western global power. Uh, and sometimes it becomes synonymous with saying, you know, um, America as the only superpower. And and the rise of the United States as a global superpower began around 1898. And it wanted to be, it, it, it was actually the last kind of superpower to enter the global stage because Europe at that time by uh, late 19th century was already into Africa, Latin America, Australia, um, Asia, Southeast Asia, but um, the U.S. still hasn't colonized uh, or formally claimed the colony until it claimed the Philippines in 1898. And and so when I think about myself as a colonial subject, I see it within that historical moment. And, and that was so important to me in understanding how I was narrating my sense of identity, how I was looking at myself as a Filipina, and and what brought me to the United States, it, it was part of that colonial process of, of exploitation, of domination. Of course, it was also undergirded very much by um, white supremacy, and, and I have a, my brother-in-law is a white theologian and he has written a book uh, which as his assumption, theoretical assumption, is that white supremacy is really the child of a white theology. You know, so th- th- there is the religious underpinning that made colonization such a powerful ideology. 
So when, for example, when the U.S. came to the Philippines, came, claimed the Philippines, it was because President McKinley had knelt and prayed to God and asked God what to do with the islands. And supposedly God had told him, you know, that um, he couldn't leave us alone because if you leave the Philippines alone, these people who are so savages and ignorant wouldn't know what to do with themselves. They wouldn't know how to use the resources they have. If we give them back to Spain, that will not be good for us. And so he said, um, God had spoken to him and has given us and has given the Philippines to the United States as part of its manifest destiny. So um, it's a very powerful story, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so many of us, and they called us, you know, well, let, the United States called us little brown brothers and little brown sisters. And so we internalized that. We internalized the concept of the United States as the father and we as the children. And yet in, in the psychological process of colonization, the child is never allowed to grow up. Of course, the child is never allowed to be good enough. The child is never allowed to become independent. So this kind of a mess, um, another Filipino-American scholar has called it white love. That is why it is so deep. And and the psychic and epistemic consequences or or violence of that process is so deep. That's why this process of decolonization has been sort of a, a consuming passion for me because I know that so many of us are still feeling that kind of damaging relationship. So I stop that for now so you can um, pick it up from their bio if you like. Yeah, I, I, I could add a few few things to that. There, there's, not, there's not many people who could add anything to what Tita says um, <laughs> um, because it's so complete and ravishing. Thank you for opening up that beautiful space of, of the historical significance of what is actually happening in the world right now. Um, because it has a tail, it has a trajectory, it has, it yeah, it has a history. And um, if I were to bring in the the African dimension of, of how, and I think I would like to capture that with a text, a, a book that I, I think I've quoted here uh, during an, a different interview, Chino Achebe's Things Fall Apart, um, where he poetically characterizes the effects of the colonial moments or, or the white um, merchants that landed in Igbo lands in eastern Nigeria um, by talking about Okonkwo and how he hung himself, you know. He just killed himself by hanging himself on a tree. Um, and there was this powerful moment where Okonkwo describes the space between him and the ground that was supposed to envelop him in his final last breathing moments. But that could not happen because he was estranged from the land. The land no longer knew his name. The land no longer knew his fathers. The land no longer knew him as Okonkwo, the son of the soil anymore. He was now an outcast in the womb that had birthed him. So in a, in a sense, uh, the colonization is, is this dynamic of estrangement. It's, it, and it, it's not it's not an academic affair. It's it's not something that intellectuals get busy with, 
Like it's, it's something that you should check off a dictionary and when you close a dictionary, out of sight is out of mind. It has nothing to do with me. It cuts across everything we do, how we live our lives, um, how we breathe, how we um, think about the world, how we educate our children, how we eat, and what we think about the future and what it means to be a self in a world with other selves. Um, the, the strand, the narrative, the the weaving effect of colonization is present everywhere. And it's not it's it's not unilinear. It's not like white people did this to us, other people. It's that even white people are subjects of colonial moments as well. And they are living in pyramidal schemes. And I'm not speaking in a blanket way again, but in, in, for as a rhetorical device at this moment, I would say that most of us gestating in modern cities are living in uh, giant pyramidal schemes that cuts off other spaces of power, other ways of thinking about ourselves. And we are, we have become um, parts of our consumerist totalitarian system that rewards us the more we, you know, the more we make the gesture of buying or selling or adding a post on Facebook or stuff like that, this hyper-individualistic framework. And we hardly ever see this as colonial, but it is colonial because it is perpetuated. There are powerful interests that are at heart, uh, that are at the heart of these systems and cut off other ways of being in the world, uh, cut us off from other ways or demonizes other ways of being in the world, other ways of thinking about ourselves and thinking about our future. Yeah, I'll just add that for now. Going back to what you said in your introduction, Rochelle, about how you experience this way of the being colonized, your sense of having been objectified, feeling disconnected, you know, this lack of, you were not introduced to emotional intelligence and so on. I, I think those are part of the process of becoming disconnected and uprooted from, from the land, from our, uh, from the original instructions, from our indigenous ways of knowing and being and, and colonization or or modern modernity as we experience it today comes from that long and big meta narrative of of um, somehow one particular group of people on the planet have achieved the apex of development and and super consciousness and therefore they now have this obligation to make everybody else be like them. And um, in my courses, I use Charles Mills' books called, called The Racial Contract. And, and the first line in his textbook says, um, white supremacy is the undergirding um, political and historical ideology of this modern era. And, and yet, Talking as a philosopher, he said, and yet philosophy has been a white discipline for 2,000 years, and it has never been called that. It, it, so a lot of the knowledge that came out of the Enlightenment era, that came out of Western European thinking, that came out of the founding of this nation, for example, comes out of that particular historical moment when we started to you know, disconnect um, that's why the idea of the self the, that first was published in novels, um, you know, 17th century, 
uh, where people started writing about the I or the individual. So this individualism is not, it's a social construct. It's, it's not as if we were born thinking me and myself and I, or I think therefore I am, you know? Right, um, right. So um, all the things that we think are natural or God-given or universal are were all socially constructed by a particular historical moment. So that when I think of what is knowledge, what is learning, what is education, everything that we learn in school comes from a particular place, from a particular moment in time. So, uh, so that my students who come thinking of their way of thinking as natural, God-given, or that's just the way things are, that's the way human nature is, that I, I, I disabuse them immediately of that notion because I, in order to break up that that way of seeing, which is exclusionary, which isolates, which marginalizes, as Bayo has mentioned, we need to begin to uh, unpack what this historical process has done to our ways of thinking today and ways of being. If, if I could quickly piggyback on on, on those comments too, it, it really brings us, you know, this really brings us to powerful places of self, uh, like it, and inflection points, if you will, where we meet ourselves for the first time. I mean, if if I were to listen to Tita and those that have been speaking about decolonial moments and uh, the promise of actually asking these powerful, intriguing questions, these troubling questions, um, I would, I can itemize a series of narratives or a series of prescriptions that I do not, I cannot quite place my finger on how I came to understand them that way. And let me give an example. Um, the idea that I am a self and I am estranged from other selves. Um, what other, what other, um, what other precept I think can I put on the list? Okay, the idea that um, schooling is where education happens and if you do not send your child to school then you're illiterate and you are without history you're without root and the fact that wealth is a function of monetary exchange exchange and the more I accrue to myself the more I am wealthier the, the more I have abundance so to speak so that the collective never shows up it's hyper individualistic and then power is really a function of the state or how high I climb. It's about social ascendancy. It's about social mobility. It's about having a car. It's about having the American dream. It's about having two children and living in a house with picket, uh, picket fences and stuff like that. It's, it's uh, th these, these stories that we tell ourselves and we pass around. It, it, the powerful thing to do in these moments is to actually stop, like we say in Africa, the, time, um, the times are urgent, let us slow down. To come to a place where we realize and they ask ourselves, how did we come to believe these things we believe? And I think that's the moment, the contours of our colonial um, enveloping or colonial or colon colonization becomes evident, as if for the first time. It is time to take a short break, but before we go, I'd like to share an excerpt from... Um, Lily Mendoza and Lenny Mendoza Strubble's book. It's called 
um, back from or the crocodile's belly. It's Philippine Babylon studies and the struggle for indigenous memory. And um, they say, we have been forging connections and collaboration on how to articulate the importance of indigenous perspectives in an age of globalization and increasing environmental catastrophe, shared concerns over the many faceted crises of global capitalist system, such as climate change, resource depletion, theft of ancestral domains, marginalization of indigenous peoples, increasing violence and militarization call on us to work towards a more sustainable, humane, earth-friendly, and earth-honoring path as we work our way out of the conundrum and despair that our current way of life invariably fosters. To do this kind of work, it is to engage in a symbolic struggle in the words of Ann Stoller to extend our historical imaginations in often unrehearsed and awkward in groping ways for none of our formal degrees or training or socialization have trained us to think outside of the default logic of the imperial mind that sees only good in accumulation and progress and bad in anything else. But the truth is that all of us at one time in our ancestry before our conscription into civilization knew how to live on the land, did things for ourselves without the mediation of corporations and had access to unlimited means for meeting limited wants, understood the ethics, ethic of reciprocity with living earth and other living beings and we did not view comfort convenience and ease to be our highest purpose but embraced death grief and struggle as a, all part of being human that is to say we were indigenous and can learn to be so again to that end to ancestral remembrance we dedicate to this book that's those are the words of um dr Lenny Strobel and Lily Mendoza, and we will be right back with Bio Okomolafe and Lenny Strobel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. In these times of converging crisis, the world needs us now more than ever before. Revolutionary Wellness Magazine is devoted to amplifying inspiring voices, facing challenging realities head on, opening up new places of power, and inviting curiosity about the paths we might take toward personal, communal, and global health. The magazine aspires to help us become the change we wish to see in the world, co-creating the more beautiful world we know to be possible. Join us on this journey. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com. Do you know that you were born to experience revolutionary wellness? Have you wondered why extraordinary physical, mental, and emotional health has eluded you? Do you know that your infinite personal power resides right here in the present moment? People all over the world are awakening to their birthright. Revolutionary Wellness. Subscribe today at revolutionarywellnessmagazine.com and begin your journey into the mystery. Engage with experts in topics of nourishment, wisdom, and empowerment. Develop mental clarity. Live wholeheartedly and be empowered to live an authentic life of passion and purpose. The world, now more than ever, needs you to feel revolutionarily well. Explore and integrate new ways of being. Learn to access your own unique treasure, the wisdom that is right there inside you, waiting to be revealed. 
Experience a renewed, vivid, and nourishing relationship with yourself and the world around you. Log on and subscribe to Revolutionary Wellness Magazine today and experience the publication devoted to your journey toward extraordinary health and well-being. RevolutionaryWellnessMagazine.com Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Our hosts are clinicians of mind and body medicine and lifestyle change. They are writers, activists, educators, and change agents. You can reach the show and our hosts at experiencerevolutionarywellness.com. Now, back to our show. Welcome back, everyone. I am here with Dr. Bio Akumalafe, and our guest today is Dr. Lenny Strobel. She's the director and founder of the Center for, for Babylon Studies, which is a nonprofit organization focusing on Filipino indigenous knowledge systems and practices with specific focus on Babylon discourse and Filipino psychology. The mission is to connect with resources and to facilitate the relevance, cultivation, cultiv- cultivation and promotion of Filipino. Filipino Indigenous Wisdom in an Age of Globalization. And um, I would actually uh, like to share a quote by Dr. Strobel in her beautiful book, Babylon, Filipinos and the Call of the Indigenous, where she writes, I've learned to ask questions. It seems it's the best I can do. Question the master narratives of modernity in order to strip them of their power to terrorize people like me. Our spirits have need of nurtures, mythic and symbolic, rooted in the soils and souls of primal primal cultures so that we might have an amulet against pathological forgetting forced on us by modernity. I wonder if my own symbolic appropriation of the Babylon, the indigenous Filipina shaman, healer, priestess, mediator, warrior counts. I hope so. I pray so. So, um, Lenny, in in an interview that you did with Molly Arthur of EcoBirth, you talked about decolonization as a spiritual path. And I wonder if we could dive into that. And um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Michelle. Okay. And thank you for choosing that particular quote because um, right this very moment, members of the Center for Babylon Studies, some of the core members are in the Philippines and in a week-long encounter with Babylons and culture bearers. Um, so I've been in prayer with them even though I can't be with them. Uh, you know, I think of academic work as a spiritual work. And and in that sense, I don't, when, when I say decolonization is a spiritual path, it means that I dive into my spiritual work, I, I dive into my academic work as part of that decolonizing work uh, as a spiritual work. Um, and... I think for me, there is a certain, I, I, feel, I feel a certain resistance when people say, let's go over and talk about the spirituality. Because if, if life is a whole, and if our body and mind and spirit are one and, in, and, and integrated, then we don't see these little compartments in our lives. So... For me, my work has taken me to places where questions, difficult questions are asked about historical moments, about shadow material. And this is where I lead my students as part of 
their spiritual work as well. So um, one of the texts that I share in my classroom is this um, essay by David Neal, who is from North Carolina. And David was writing about his great-grandfather, Fielding Fry. And um, David, because he has become aware of his own whiteness and his white privilege, he wanted to understand his ancestry and how this system has um, gave him the life that he had. And, and he, in this essay, he said that his grandfather had made sure, that his great-grandfather had made sure that his descendants would know all of his accomplishments in life. You know, he became a wealthy businessman, he became a wealthy uh, insurance uh, corporate owner and uh, respected town uh, citizen and so on. And then he said, uh, David Neal wrote, but my great-grandfather didn't say that he was also a member of a patriot group that were against desegregation. He supported all of these white supremacist policies and said, and these are the absences and, and the, the things that he excluded from his biography that were passed on down to, to, to him uh, as the great-grandson. And he said, in order for me to acknowledge who I am as a white man, aware and decolonizing, I need to acknowledge and see how that was given to me, how that privilege was given to me. And there he found that his great-grandfather was a white supremacist, you know. And, and so when I take my students through this process of decolonizing, it is not to make them feel guilty or ashamed. It is not to make them feel bad about who they are, but it's, also, it's to give them a way out of the story that, that, that has created disconnection, that has created uh, pain, the pain of isolation, the pain of uh, being disconnected from one's ancestors, and the pain of, um, there, there is a lot of pain and a lot of grief, and we walk them through that process for a whole year. And at the end of that year, then they come out and say, wow, now I'm no longer afraid to let go of my white privilege because my sense of self is larger. Right? My sense of self has expanded to include all of these elements that connects me with my ancestry, with my history, with nature, with place, uh, with my dreams, with mythic stories, and so on. So, so this process is um, of decolonization is is ritual in that sense. It's 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 just, it includes those difficult encounters with shadow material. It includes healing and mourning and grieving, but also celebrating and then feeling gratitude for having come to the moment of having rewritten their story. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? It does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Bio, how would you like to respond to um, the intersection of spirituality and decolonization? Oh, great. Um, so I, I could, yeah. So in my own, I had a, uh, prior to walking out of, well, I wouldn't say it's a complete walking out, but let me just say when I was practicing as a Western-trained clinical psychologist, 
um, I, part of my research at that time, which was for my uh, doctorate degree, while I was being trained at the Federal Neuropsychiatric Hospital in Eastern Nigeria, in Eastern Nigeria uh, part of my research was to understand um, the problems of the mental health industry. And I, I think this cuts deeply into what we're doing here, speaking about larger tropes of wellness um, on this show. Um, well, I, I came to understand that the discourse was largely focused on um, bed space, increasing bed space. So every time uh, policymakers gathered together to discuss why people were still on the streets or why people presented with certain symptoms to the exclusion of others, it was, it was always about how do we pump more money into the federal government or into state governments of Nigeria and increase bed spaces. We only have three neuropsychiatric hospitals or three healing centers uh, functional uh, uh, and fully um, capable centers in the Federation. So how can we increase bed space? That was always the conversation. And going into research, I, I wanted to ask if there are other ways of thinking about the question. If, if maybe the question, if maybe the answer itself wasn't, you know, insidious, you know, the idea that um, the only way to think about wellness or well-being was to calculate, you know, how many beds there were in a room or how many people were going to university to study psychiatry or clinical psychology and then to just extrapolate from that and come up with a budget. You know, that, that seems to be the way the modern world works. Instead, I decided to ask a different question. How have my people Yoruba people in Western Nigeria, how have they conceived of and practiced healing in their own settings prior to Western moments, Western um, infiltrations, if you will? And, and that question took me to the feet of seven um, healer priests who totally radically challenged the premise of, the, of you know, Western psychotherapy the idea that the only way to think about it is in incremental um, ways. The only way to think about healing is in terms of pills. And this is not to uh, dismiss pills and all of that. It's, it's just to say that something else is happening, that um, being modern or being entrenched in the amniotic fluids of the modern world will not allow us to see and will not allow us to appreciate. Those men taught me about the spirituality of depression, of seeing, of seeing our shadows, as Tita has just talked about, of seeing our shadows as openings, of, of thinking about a human being as a human becoming that is always tethered and interconnected with other beings, the contours of which we cannot even begin to describe. So they, they, they largely expanded my view of spirituality of being in the world. Um, prior to that, I was a church-going boy that felt the only way to be sacred in the world is to fulfill my duties as a righteous saint that will someday go marching in and will earn brown, uh, brownie points um, to, the, to the extent that I be, do holy deeds. You know, somewhere my name will be in the book of life. But I, the, the more I entered into uh, the identities that my education had you know, estranged me from the land that uh, 
I was estranged from, the more I entered deeply into it, the more I noticed that the, 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 the most sensuous ways of thinking about my identities, of thinking about shadows, of thinking about the possibilities of being in the world, that my schooling, all my schooling, did not allow me to see. So yeah, I, I'll just put it that way for now so I don't take too much time. Bio, uh, I wonder if both you and Lenny might speak to just how does this look in your day-to-day life? Like, how how is this real for you? Um, Peter, you want to go first? What does decolonization look like for me? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, I was just thinking as Bio was talking, it reminded me that more than 30 years ago, before I left the Philippines, I was an evangelical Christian. I was raised by missionaries. And somebody <laughs> said, Lenny, what are you going to do when you get to the States? You know, And I said, my answer was, I was so certain and secure and confident in my answer. And I said, I'm going to go to heaven and take as many with me as possible. <laughs> <laughs> And But it was shortly after I got here and I started going to church and I said, wow, how come these other Christians do not treat me the way I felt mm. been treated as a Christian in my, in, in my homeland? And that was the beginning of all of the questions that have come up for me that led me into therapy because I kept thinking there was something wrong with me. And, mm. And because I was asking all these questions and, and, you know, why do people look at me this way? Why do they ask me if he got me out of a catalog? Why, why, did, <clears throat> why do they assume that I can take care of their children? So I was, I, I refused to settle for the answers that were being offered, you know. And, and the more I asked questions, the more unsettled I became. And then I began to... Uh, I left the church, and I left. I left a lot of things behind. <laughs> and mm. but now, when I think about it, when I think of decolonization, I no lo- I no longer disown those parts of myself in the past. Mm. I just bring them forward with me and say, I am who I am today because of all of those experiences, because of all of those encounters that were painful, that had to be healed, that were traumatizing. But I can now bring those forward because I know who I am. And my mm. and it reminded me of my mentor who said, Lenny, your colonial self is just a sliver of your big beautiful self. And, and I'm now mm. at place after 30 years of working on this process of saying yes I am beautiful I am whole I you know I have never been sick I thought I was you know so uh, I was in the Philippines in 2008 and an elderly indigenous woman a noble woman during a symposium um, said please allow us to express our beauty I was just stunned when she said this, you know, and I I thought, here is an indigenous woman. We were in a symposium with Filipino-American teachers, and and she did not say, you know, we need money, we need education, we need democracy, we need your help. She did not say any of that stuff. 
she just said, please allow us to express our beauty. Mm-hmm. And, and I think mm-hmm. at that moment, something changed for me. There were so many moments that were transformative, you know, going back to the homeland and, and, and immersing myself in indigenous communities and taking off my shoes to dance, taking off uh, and, and, and doing tribal dancing. Um, I would never have done that before because my body was so disciplined uh, by, by this Methodist upbringing that said, it's a sin to dance. It's a sin to put makeup mm-hmm. on. It's a sin to have sex. It's a sin. Everything is simple. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so I began to liberate myself from those notions and, and, and just began to really listen. Hey, body, what do you really want? And what do you really know? Mm-hmm. So just mm-hmm. diving. At the Babylon books came out of that process, Rochelle, of, of asking, what does the body know? What does my body? So it's it's. I I think I have tried to heal the disconnect between my mind and my body um, through this process of of decolonization. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of things have changed in my daily habits. You know, I I know specifically the moment when I stopped shopping at Safeway. You know, because I wouldn't buy brand names, corporate brand names anymore. Mm-hmm. I knew exactly when I know I decided I will not shop at Walmart, you know, because mm-hmm. of the way they treat their employees. So practical little things like that, choices that I make on a daily basis is yeah. part of this work, you know, including yeah. the books that I read, the movies that I watch. Um, everything is filtered now through that lens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, Bio, mm. how about you? How would you respond to that? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, uh, let, let, me, let me preface what I want to say by saying it, it, there, there is always the temptation to, to want to own stuff like this, to, you know, to package it into a safe program that promises you uh, mm. maybe a decolonization, uh, like it, decolonization in three easy steps, mm. like... Like here you are, you can be finally decolonized, and you can <laughs> walk away. You could walk away from all these issues with um, elided pasts and troublesome futures and patriarchal nonsense and all of that, <laughs> all by taking this course or yeah. all by doing this thing, and then you can step out wholly and and be finally free. You know, because modernity teaches us to uh, to long for completion. To long for for absolution, you know, to be free. So mm-hmm. there's a word for it that I like: manumission, to be set free finally. And 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 I like what Tita said about the colonial self being a sliver of her large, beautiful self. And and what that speaks to me personally. And I'm gonna take that. I was gonna say I was gonna take it home. I am home, but I, I'm gonna write that somewhere. It what that speaks uh, very plainly to me is that we never show up completely. We're, we only show up partially. And, and what that means, um, to take that further, is there is no sense of arrival. There's no final place. There's no final bus stop. There's no getting this. Like, it, it's, it's tempting to want to make a doctrine out of this, uh, to make a creed out of this and say, if I plant, if I have a backyard garden, if I grow my tomatoes, um, if I don't, if I eat vegan, then I'm finally... 
the good guys. I'm one of the good ones. Um, but this is not about that. It's, it's about noticing how everything shows up, um, how even the shadowy parts of ourselves are instructors. Uh, or, or as I wrote recently in, in a text, in, a, in, in my book, actually, that the, the things that stand in our way, the obstacles are also part of our way. So, so there, is no, there is no getting this finally. Uh, and I think for me and um, my family, the way that we decided to, to respond, if you will, to these concepts, these urgings for a deeper sense of self, something that was deeper than the final call of, of modernity, was to, to walk out of the university um, without demonizing or authorizing the university as some evil place where evil things happen, <laughs> but thinking of, but thinking about what we what we what we wanted, like an enchanted, intimate life. Um, the place where we did most of our teaching was a place that championed greatness, urging people to be great, and it felt good at one point, but it also felt at some point dangerous um we wanted to we wanted the right to, to be mediocre <laughs> we wanted the right to be small uh to to not have to worry about standing with arms akimbo and being heroes while our capes flapped in the wind we wanted to be to be to be warm and to know how to be in community and in place so um we walked out of the university we decided that we were going to listen more to our children and try to be co-partners with them instead of just their instructors. We decided to see our daughter and now our son as gifts of the earth, not coming into the earth as if they're coming from some nether regions or heaven, but, from, but coming out of the earth. So basically coming out with a depth of wisdom tattooed with, with knowledge that we can't even begin to speak about. And, and, and then we are relearning, we are unlearning the way we deal with money. Most of us think the, the, to the extent that we have money, that's the extent that we are permitted to live. That's the, the extent that we are endorsed by the world to breathe. And we're learning otherwise. Living in India these past few years, um, we are learning to think of um, money as the things that it comes once in a while, but it's not the absolute. Um, we're learning to see gift where people will see numbers. We're learning to, to say thank you to the moon. Only today, my daughter asked a question, and I pulled out a book and named it Alethea's Book of Failures. And in that book, I'm, I, I've, I'm telling myself I'm going to record all her questions and all the messy ways we're finding out, uh, find, finding ways of engaging that question. She asked a question today. What, what makes soap slippery and why is water wet? And so I put that down in the book and we went out on the streets of India. Well, not the streets of India in that large, but the streets of my neighborhood in India and started to ask that question. And tomorrow we're going to a small soap making cottage to learn how, why soap is slippery. And she may not earn a certificate from that, but I tell you, it's much more, I feel enchanted and much more rewarding to see that my daughter learns how to learn and ask questions. And this is the beauty of decolonial moments, knowing that there are other places of being, other ways of being with the world that could undercut our anxiety about catching up 
with GDP in indices and reducing climate uh, emissions and all of that. There are other ways of rethinking the meaning of the world that we do not have any idea about yet. That's beautiful. Our guest for this amazing series is Dr. Lenny Strobel. She is a professor, an eminent scholar, author, activist, a Babylon inspired woman, and a lot more. She also calls herself a settler and a colonized person, and she has embarked on a long and arduous journey to unlearn 500 years of colonial influence, which has shaped her consciousness and identity. And you can learn more at LennyStrobel.com. Thank you, dear Lenny, for being with us today for this part two episode of our decolonization series on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Thank you for your palpable, powerful feminine presence in the world guiding us so skillfully toward a sustainable, heart-filled existence that is moral, just and reverent. Thank you so much, dear Lenny. Thank you, Rochelle. Thank you, Bio, for this time with you. Yeah, thank and you, Bio. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for co-hosting this amazing series with me and for modeling what it means to be a loving spouse, a devoted father, and a great healer of humanity. You really are an extraordinary model of the new masculine and male that's emerging, and it's such a strong and powerful um, presence, but also vulnerable and loving, and I feel so blessed to know you and to be touched by you and your work in this lifetime. Thank you so much, Bio. Thank you, Rochelle. Great to be here again. And to all of our listeners, tune in next week for the Emergence Network's Precipice Series with Annie Levin, where we will be wondering out loud together as we navigate the perplexing ecological, social, economic, and existential realities of our times. It's such a pleasure to be here with you all on Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. And I really appreciate it if you take a few seconds to share this episode with your friends or email me with any comments you may have. You know, this is really a way that we can work together to make the world a little more well. And if you want more resources, you can come to experiencerevolutionarywellness.com, sign up for our email updates, and you'll be the first to see the new beautiful issue of Revolutionary Wellness Magazine. So thank you all for joining us on this journey. Until next time, I'm Rochelle McLaughlin. May you be well, and may we all be well. Thank you for opening your heart and mind to new ways of seeing to greater degrees of compassion, and to pathways to health for our world with Revolutionary Wellness Talk Radio. Join us next Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time to expand your perspective, deepen your attention, and cultivate practices that support personal, communal, and global health on Voice America's Health and Wellness Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.